And then I picked up Orwell, and it was like, stunning. This guy is writing about our own times. Not only are his concerns, our concerns, individual liberty, the intrusive corporation, the surveillance state, the age of permanent warfare, but his style is fresh and contemporary. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Tom Ricks. His new book, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom, was just released this week, and I'm excited to welcome him to the table to discuss it. Tom is a foreign policy columnist, writing daily for FP's Best Defense blog and the best-selling author of Fiasco and the Generals. He covered the U.S. military for over two decades, working for The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post. Also joining us in Washington today is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. And a new guest who I'm pleased to welcome, FP's own Middle East editor, David Kenner, who is calling in from Beirut. ER nerds, we're excited to be back this week and welcome your feedback. You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So I just finished Tom's book today, and it is terrific. Sharon, before we start, for the ER faithful, those 12 people out there who listen to the podcast, can I just have a moment of silence for our dear departed David Rothkoff, who's this podcast was his idea. And as delighted as I am to have you join the ball club, I know our listeners join with me in saying we miss you, David. Absolutely. Thank you. So, Tom, your book is terrific. I just finished it. And it's a fast-paced narrative that's structured as a dual biography of Churchill and Orwell amid the rise of fascism and totalitarianism in Europe. And given today's political atmosphere, I have to admit it's hard to read this book without feeling a sort of low-grade anxiety. Um, As you're sort of drawn into seemingly familiar events, democracy is under threat, truth is fungible, and it's unclear how it will all end. So when did you start writing this book? Because it feels very current. Well, I think that's due as much to George Orwell as it is to me. Um, what really the seeds of this book came out of two things. First, uh, I realized that my two heroes, Churchill and Orwell, both had been war correspondents in their youth, as I was uh, at the time at the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. That intrigued me. And then while I was finishing up my last book, The Generals, I began going back and looking at a lot of 20th century journalism, just puzzled by why so much of it seemed out of date, anachronistic, stale. I went back and I read a lot of H.L. Mencken, E.B. White, some Hemingway, and none of it really spoke to, to our times. It all seemed to be have an entirely different context that really didn't matter anymore. And then I picked up Orwell, and it was like, Stunning. This guy is writing about our own times. Not only are his concerns, our concerns, individual liberty, the intrusive corporation, the surveillance state, the age of permanent warfare, but his style is fresh and contemporary. And I came to think after rereading all his essays that Orwell invented the op-ed in the tone of an op-ed in which you state a thesis, you introduce a few facts about it, you explore the implications and come to a conclusion in about 700 words. Uh, I think George Well invented the modern journalistic sensibility, really. So take us back in time. I mean, literally, what year were you when you started writing this and thinking about it? It was about three and a half years ago. I innocently didn't think the publishing world would be interested in the book in Churchill and Orwell. My agent, Andrew Wiley, said, are you kidding? You could put Churchill on a book and it'll sell. Don't worry. I said, fine, I'll write it. My editor, Scott Moyers at Penguin Press, I've written five books with in the past. 
I really have come to trust his judgment. And he gave me a nice fat advance and said, I really envy you. I'm paying you to go spend a few years wallowing in the words of Churchill and Orwell. I envy you a lot. That is a good deal. It is. And I, I really, I enjoyed the research enormously. And my thinking had always been, if you enjoy the writing, it'll be an enjoyable read. So about two years ago, I think I finished the first draft, pish posh, mailed it off to Scott Moyers. Here's the book. You know, let me know if you need any changes. Scott gets back to me after a surprisingly long time, about three weeks, and says, not only do I hate this, I, I really fucking hate it. <laughs> wow, that's a quite um, that's honest feedback. And, uh, wow, that's a trapdoor opening underneath your feet. I of. literally sat down in a, you know, involuntarily. And Scott has written me tough edits in the past. In my first book, he sent me an 18-page single-space letter telling me what he wanted done to it. This, he sent me a letter with kind of, maybe you can redo this. I don't know if it'll work, but here's what you could try. And <laughs> we packed up and went down to Austin, as we do every winter to escape the six-month-long Maine winter. I took the letter of his, and I reread it and reread it. And I remember sitting at that desk in Austin, listening to Sun Radio on the computer, and thinking, oh, my God, he's right. Well, what did he hate? I mean, what was it that was so fundamentally flawed? I had put the books before the people. I was not chronological. I was thematic. Mm -hmm. I was trying to write like I was a gopnik, and I'm not. <laughs> and all of that became clear to me. Scott at one point, and I had the whole manuscript with all his angry notations on it. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite one, which I wrote... Uh, down and kept at the top of my, my second draft was Tom, if you would simply defer to the narrative, you could get away with murder. Yeah, wow. And but it, that's it's really so true. true. Yeah. And so the rewrite actually was really interesting. The story came alive in my hands. I would come downstairs and cook lunch for my wife. And she said, you're so happy. I've never seen you so happy in a rewrite. And I said, because it feels right. Things are coming together here. I'm going, oh, now when you put it in narrative, I didn't realize those two events came so close together. Boy, is that illuminating, you know, that Orwell gets shot through the throat, and then the next thing he writes in a letter is X, Y, Z. Uh, so it really changed the story for me. And it was with great gratitude that I finally saw it, went down and had lunch with Scott after a seven-month rewrite and said, I really think this works. And he wrote back, yeah. But he said it takes a good writer to admit it. Right. I mean, that's what struck me about the book is you're really sort of caught up in this narrative and you feel anxious for, for what's happening. Um, it's an anxiety-provoking time. I mean, the, the 1930s internationally, and they do echo today, as you said early on, there, there's an anxiety in the air at that time. In fact, W.H. Auden writes his poem, The Age of Anxiety, about that time. And there are real parallels to today. Uh, the parallel that bothers me most personally is all the young people I meet who no longer really believe in free speech in this country, who think that they have the right to shut up people they disagree with and even to punch people. When I grew up and I, believing, and I still do, that free speech must be utterly protected, especially the most repugnant speech, the racist, the Nazi, the extremist. These are the people who need to be allowed to speak peacefully. Uh, and we're losing that in this country, and that really worries me. 
But are both sides evoking Orwell in that? I mean, would both the people trying to silence some of the people, I mean, because that's what it feels like. And, and you talk about this in the book, both sort of the neocons and the left trying to embrace the Orwell legacy. Um, is one side have a greater claim to it? Well, the funny thing is the neocons and the left are now allied in America against Trump. I was thinking about this today. I think the most interesting political group in America are people like Elliot Cohen and William Crystal of the Weekly Standard. The conservatives who are alienated by Trump are delivering, I think, quite powerful and persuasive critiques of Trump because they are conservatives at heart and they're saying this is not conservatism. This is something else. Uh, I find them quite moving. And in fact, I shocked an anchor on CNN yesterday when I began talking about McMaster losing his soul, the national security advisor. And I guess on CNN, they're not used to talking about people's souls. Um, I think partly because there was no evidence introduced. How do you know he's losing his soul? I said, well, you can see it leave through Sean Spicer's eyes already. He's dead. His soul is dead. I mean, these are sort of zombies walking around the White House. And um, I've gotten that sort of vocabulary of talking about soul in government, preserving your soul, preserving your sense of self, especially from Elliot Cohen, who wrote a nice piece the other day in The Atlantic about preserving the ability to look yourself in the mirror and recognizing it, that face after a year or two in government. Right. Let's talk about the writing itself. So, Corey, I'm curious. I mean, you, we all read 1984 and Animal Farm back in, in high school or college. Did you, did you like it at the time? Did it make an impression on you? No, I didn't like either of the books. Really? And no, I still don't like either of the books. Well, I think you need to expand on that. <laughs> time out here. Have you read Animal Farm recently? No, not recently. You should go back. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a short read. You could read it in one evening. It's very funny. Like it has these odd little fairy tale like moments, like when the um, the sheep in their sheep like way keep chanting four legs good, two legs bad," <laughs> and um, the birds object okay, so my recollection of them, both not having read them in a very long time, is that um, all of the things I enjoy about novels. The arc of storytelling, character development. Napoleon uh, and Snowball didn't do it for you. (laughs) (laughs) Orwell's great on an important message, but it lacks subtlety, even in my high school reader's recollection of it. I love his essays. I love the writing in the essays. I love the subtle gradations of moral judgment he makes that you bring out so nicely in the book. I just don't get that from the novels. Well, you, I, I just want to be the first to say here, he is not a traditionalist novelist. He is not a naturalist novelist at all. Animal Farm is a fable in the tradition of talking animal stories. And uh, 1984 is a Jesus, hard. is there a tradition of talking animal stories? Oh. <laughs> There's <laughs> a lot. Um, okay, let me just say, ER listeners, I expect you to be on this. I want a an avalanche of tweets about all of the genre of you talking don't know animal what you're prepared fables. for. Not only is there a great tradition, going back to Aesop's fables, um, several of the top 10 selling books of the 20th century are talking animals. What? Dr. Doolittle. Okay. Charlotte's Web, Animal Farm, The Wind in the Willows. For some reason, the Edwardians just love talking animals who talk like stuffy British gentlemen. 
<laughs> Wonder what the attraction is. Weasel said to Toad, I simply love your new smoking jacket. I must get one myself. Actually, in the middle of writing Churchill Orwell, we're on ER so I can talk this stuff. Uh, I wrote a parody called Frog and Toad Get Laid. <laughs> <laughs> I can't find a publisher for it. Keep trying. Keep trying. Um, so, yeah, talking uh, – David, how do you feel about talking animal fables? Did you like Animal Farm in 1984? Well, only one of those is talking animals, but go on. Um, you know, I remember in high school reading them and having the same reaction Corey did, that they're they're pretty elementary even for that age. It was only – in college that I picked up homage to Catalonia, where I really started liking Orwell. Um, and obviously, Politics in the English Language is a great essay. Um, it, it, I, I ended up reading a book of his collected letters. There, there's like a three or four volume set of his collected letters that's absolutely brilliant and sort of catalogs his, um, his time and his evolution as a thinker. But I mean, he's really an essayist. He, As Tom says, he's really an op-ed writer who sort of wrote these two famous novels almost by accident. I mean, he's not a pro stylist in in any sense of the word. And and I think Tom did a good job highlighting that. It's the ideas that are important, not sort of the talking animals part of it. But we noticed Tom went straight to the talking animals part of it. I'm going to be the one that admits here that I read Animal Farm before it was assigned in school and thought it was a wonderful tale about talking animals. I loved it. <laughs> it's a hoot, actually. Animal Farm is something you could read to kids and they would enjoy. They might not like the part where the dogs tear out the throats of the pigs that complained. Um, but, you know, life is tough. I mean, you know, and this does go back to Peter Rabbit, another of the great selling talking animals. The first thing that Peter's mother says to him, Mrs. Rabbit says, don't go down the garden path because that's how your father wound up in Mr. McGregor's pie. There we go. Wow, that's dark. So would the rats of Nim count as that or, or oh, Watership yeah. Down? Those are, okay, those still count in the talking yeah, those animals. those are kind genre. of, I think, weak What? Winnie the Pooh! I'm clearly the only the fan Pooh. here of talking animals. Okay. No, I'm, I'm a big fan of talking animals, but I think that the tradition has fallen off a right. little bit. Oh, so with uh, Kipling, jungle stories. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of talking animals in, too. We could go on about this all day. Right. So back to one of the things I find so fascinating in the book is you really sort of delve into George Orwell's writing and, in fact, all of sort of the obscure novels that we don't read today. But one of the things that I don't, for some reason I kind of got caught up on it is you talk about Orwell's obsession with smell. Can you just talk about that for a minute or why that was important to him or how that came out? One of the things I wanted to do in this book is not make these people into plaster heroes. Churchill and Orwell are both deeply flawed people, and more than than the sense that everybody is human, everybody's flawed. Their flaws were really big, uh, Orwell's and Churchill's both. Churchill was basically a very selfish, egocentric, probably narcissistic guy who lacked empathy. That said, I don't think a more empathetic leader might have made it through World War II. Yeah. You need to, he needed to be almost cruel. Uh, he didn't pay attention to people's feelings. He fired people when they needed firing and did a good job at it. Orwell had a number of peculiarities. Uh, I find him repugnant when he writes about uh, sexual intimacy uh, you're women. I'd like to hear your opinion. But it just makes my flesh, flesh crawl, even the, the sex scenes in 1984. They're awful. And one of Orwell's real idiosyncrasies is this overdeveloped sense of smell. I found one sentence um, in Homage to Catalonia, which is a great book and I think my favorite piece of writing by, 
by Orwell, that's with David, in which he uses the word smell three times in one sentence. He, uh, He always writes about smell. And in particular, he writes about human smells with great revulsion. He doesn't mind the smells of nature, even the manure smells of the barnyard he finds rich and encouraging. But human smells he hates. The garlicky smell of Frenchman's breath on the metro during his morning commute to his dishwashing job in Paris. He just hates the way people smell. And he eventually, in his probably most erratic book, uh, The Road to Wigan Pier, uh, the first half of which is very good, the second half is just screamingly bad. <laughs> uh, in The Road to Wigan Pier, in the bad second half, he develops a theory of politics based on smell that the middle class doesn't like the working class because they smell. These are a couple of weird dudes here sometimes. Great men, my heroes, but and, very And human. yet I feel catapulted into saying that I would rather have weird, misanthropic, glad I'm not married to him, George Orwell, reminding all of us about the insidiousness of authoritarian um, power and the huge importance of free thinking, free speech. I don't care if he's not a good person. I'm not going to live next door to him. I want him talking about what he can contribute. Ditto Churchill. Martin Luther King and Franklin Roosevelt were terrible husbands. I'm still glad they made their contribution to the country. And I hate the way we expect everyone to be flawless in order to make any contribution to the social good. I think so few of us meet those standards. We just don't have statistically, we're a worse society if we set that standard. Well said, Corey. Uh, I would actually submit that it's partly because of Orwell's flaws, which you described very well, the way, you know, he's not somebody you particularly would like to have dinner with. Um, It's partly because of his flaws that I think he was able to perceive the problems of authoritarianism so much. The great puzzlements of Orwell's life to me is his choosing to become an imperial policeman as he comes out of Eton. This is not a natural choice. And he becomes kind of the third low-grade policeman. He's not even joining the Indian Army or anything. He's in the Burmese police. They don't like him. They send him up to the end of the railroad line. He really is at the edge of the British Empire. Why did this guy become a policeman? I think because he'd been bullied so much as a teenager at school. He wanted to exercise power. He wanted to see what power was. And he found he didn't like himself when he exercised power. He writes the essay, Shooting an Elephant, about how the exercise of colonial power corrupts the colonialist as much as it destroys the native. And I I think he he walks away from that and says, I've got to get rid of this. And that's why he throws himself into the underground of London and Paris to kind of get that off him. Uh, But again, in World War II, he can't get into the army. He winds up being a propagandist. This is the guy who then goes on and writes the best book ever about propaganda. So I think he's a lot, I think Orwell felt a similar repugnance about himself and studies himself in his dark alleys, in his seedy corners, in his dank basements, and that produces his, some of his best work. Well, yeah, Tom, um, sorry, sorry to do, you, you also basically say that he's an anti-Semite, which is um, th- this incredible contradiction with this man that we know as uh, this incredible opponent of fascism. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, and it's something that still puzzles me. Um, I was actually just interviewed by somebody from the BBC, who is a descendant of the historian George Trevelyan. And we were talking about that. 
And she said the oddity is that her grandfather was not an, anti, an anti-Semite, nor was Churchill. Mm-hmm. But Orwell, she said, is very much in the British tradition of anti-Semitism. And he was so good at exploring the cliches, the cant, the unexamined assumptions of others. But this pops up again and again in his work. And even um, in his thinking about the creation of Israel just at the end of his life, that is attributed more to his anti-nationalism but I, than to his anti-Semitism. But I think there are elements of both in his attitudes. David, I have a question for you. One of the things that Tom talks about in his book is sort of the deep cultural resonance of Orwell that goes even beyond the United States. At one point, it's quoted by a Pakistani journalist. Um, how, how do Orwell's books do in the Middle East in translation? I mean, what is sort of the, the, the cultural importance or not of Orwell there? Um, well, you certainly see 1984 quoted frequently among um, sort of Western-educated intelligentsia as this sort of warning against incipient totalitarianism. Um, I, I definitely think that exists. Um, and, and you do see so much sort of blatant propaganda in the Middle East that mirrors what Orwell was warning against. So um, I, I think that that obviously contains resonance to this part of the world. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I think there are great similarities um, for people who read Orwell enough over here um, and, and can see them. Um, I don't know how deeply Orwell penetrates. You know, you, you already have to have a Western education to be reading Orwell over here. Um, and, and there's a large part of the population that obviously doesn't have that. It's a nice point, David. But uh, it does resonate especially well in China. Whereas I note there have been, I think, 18 translations of 1984 published. Huh. Why in China then and not why there? Well, I think the Middle East has a problematic relationship with books to begin with. I mean, there is no book market in the Middle East. Why, I don't know. Uh, China has a lot of publishers. And um, And they're also very clearly living the experience that he's describing. The the notion of having a Western education in order – like David's point's a really good one that you have to – be limber in how you think about the repressive role of governments. And while I'm not sure that's that's unique to the Western tradition, I do think that in China, like, it's a bubbling race between whether the government can, you know, the government is operating on the notion that as long as people become more and more prosperous, they won't care about fundamental rights. And Orwell says that's fundamentally not true. And so I think his popularity has a dissident cachet in China that it doesn't often in other places where the authoritarian bargain isn't as clear and as materialistic as it is in China. I'd like to put that on the back cover of the Chinese edition. (laughs) Um, So let's bring us a little bit to the present. So in 1984, objective reality has been crushed by the state and by the state's control of information. But it feels like the debate we have today, it's not so much over the state suppressing information, although there's that debate as well, but that we're sort of bombarded on all sides by whether it's, you know, call it fake news or what you want. Do you think Orwell could have anticipated what we have today or what would he make of it? I think Orwell anticipated it very well. I think what you had today and in the 1930s was not so much fake facts as people deciding the facts don't matter, that opinion matters, and they have their opinions, and those opinions become impervious to facts. Uh, There's actually a 
section of the book I'd love to read. Please do. Uh, which is Orwell coming back from Spain is struck when he picks up the newspapers and he doesn't recognize the war he's just been in uh, and says, this is stunning. These people are not reporting the facts. And this is what Orwell writes about it. In Spain, for the first time, I saw newspaper reports which did not bear any relation to the facts. I saw great battles reported where there had been no fighting. In complete silence, where hundreds of men had been killed, I saw troops who had fought bravely, denounced as cowardice and traitors, and others who had never seen a shot fired, hailed as the heroes of imaginary victories. And I saw newspapers in London retailing those lies, and eager intellectuals building superstructures over events that had never happened. I also like his tone there a little bit because it's a little bit like the, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, sort of, and I saw, you know, a city in the air and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um. Yes, it's a wonderful passage. My favorite thing you pull out in the book is the way Orwell generalizes in important ways, but there are some very specific uh, blind spots. And the one that struck me most was that his deep pessimism about capitalism We, in contemporary democratization theory, for example, we think about free markets and free peoples being indistinguishable from each other. And Orwell didn't make that connection at all. He was, as you bring out so nicely in the book, profoundly pessimistic about capitalism and thinking of it as injurious to freedom, whereas we now think of it as an essential component of a free. Talk a little bit more about that. I actually have a really good piece in Politico today about this, um, what Orwell saw about today and what he missed. In a nutshell, Orwell's great blind spot, as Christopher Hitchens put it, was America. Churchill, half-American himself, a a, a mongrel, a half-breed, as he was described sometimes by conservative party members who didn't like him, liked America, came to America, and understood America pretty well. Orwell never made it to America. And he never saw modern, adaptive, resilient capitalism. Mm-hmm. Remember that he's writing coming out of the 1930s, a Great Depression in which capitalism really had failed a lot of people in a lot of ways. It wasn't selling freedom. It was selling starvation. It didn't seem to work. The second thing is, unfortunately for him, the kind of capitalism he was able to witness was a particularly inept selfish and slow, short-sighted form of capitalism called late industrial capitalism led by British aristocrats. Right. They didn't invest enough in their companies and in innovation. They didn't pay their workers and researchers enough. They took out too much money in dividends so they could buy yachts and, and live in south, south of France during the winter. And they most of all had a contempt for applied research. They liked basic research. Uh, There's a reason the British invented a good part of the radar, but really didn't get it into good shape. There's a reason the British invented penicillin. But to to Churchill's great frustration, despite inventing penicillin, they had to get the Americans to make it for them because they couldn't do it well enough. Uh, There's a reason that the British drop out of the airliner industry in the 1950s 
because they couldn't make sufficiently good machines. Wow. There's a reason the British get knocked out of the automobile industry. And it's the same reason they had bad tanks during World War II and had to get most of their tanks from Americans. And there's a reason that there is no British IBM today. There's a German IBM. There's other companies doing great information operations overseas and in China. But basically, the British are failing as an economy starting in about 1880. And they would have lost their empire no matter what they did in World War II. So Churchill sees some of this. Orwell, I think, really doesn't understand how badly off the British economy was. Had he, he would have been even more contemptuous of the British aristocracy. But what he couldn't understand was something like Silicon Valley, failure, um, inefficiency. All he saw was an economy that was trying to squeeze out micro-efficiencies and a few pennies more on the, on the pound. What he didn't see was Silicon Valley where failure is half the game. If you're not failing, you're not going to invent. It's, mm-hmm. Silicon Valley is the antithesis of efficiency. You don't want efficiency because you can't get innovation by being efficient. Right. Creativity isn't an efficient process. It's sloppy, but also the British were all about making a faster typewriter and then an electric typewriter and then a faster electric typewriter. Yeah, yeah. So my favorite British commentary on the United States that is from the 1880s is a travel writer who who says of the United States that two things struck him powerfully about the United States, that first, America is is inescapably the future. The dynamism and vitality of the society are, are momentous. And the second is that it is also fundamentally a barbaric society. And that's that condescension that the British have when you don't swim in the water of failure as a constituent part of success. And I think the British still think we're a pretty barbarous society. And we are in a lot of ways. We're an extraordinarily violent society. One reason I became a Pentagon reporter was I figured that covering use management of violence in America was like covering wine and cheese if you live in France. <laughs> you know, we've spoken a lot about Orwell, but not as much about Churchill. And Well, so- we reversed the usual. Yeah. As, as a friend of mine said, your motto should be, come for the Churchill, stay for the Orwell. It's because of my love of Animal Farm. What, what surprised, I mean, in doing the research for this, what surprised you most about, about Churchill's background? I think the single thing that struck me most about looking at Churchill's life as a whole and really sitting down and thinking about it, was that for most of his life and most of the things he did, he was a failure. He failed up almost. <laughs> he, he begins with this awful background, this sadistically nasty father, this very remote woman who's his mother but doesn't bother him at all. He's being shipped off to relatives at holiday times from school. He doesn't even go home during, during mm. the breaks. Uh, his father is in town. He, know, he finds out from reading the newspaper his father's in town in Brighton when he's in school in Brighton. Father doesn't even come to see him. He writes letters to his father pleading, come see me at school. I'm going to win a prize. Never comes. He then goes off and has a variety of, of failures and so on. And he rises up and has big failure in World War I. He spends the 1930s in what he calls the political wilderness, totally isolated within his own party. He knows this guy who keeps on raving about uh, these crazy Germans. He has one really good year as prime minister, 
1940, which is magnificent, and he basically saves the West. The rest of his World War II is not very good. It's striking if you look at the volume of his great speeches by David Carradine, uh, there are no speeches, I think, from 43 to 45. It's just, he goes almost silent in a lot of ways. And then he runs for prime minister. He loses election in July 45 before World War II is even over in the Pacific. He's shocked by that. He's angered by it. He goes off and writes these great memoirs, which I do love reading and rereading. And then he has a lousy second term as prime minister in the 1950s when he had no right to hold public office at that point. He, he, he was falling apart physically. He was having strokes. He had no real interest in governing. And he was simply standing athwart the train tracks of history. Well, we're about out of time. So I wanted to ask you one thing, but I'm going to hold it over for next time, which is Donald Trump's decision to bring a bust of Churchill into the Oval Office or back into the Oval Office. Um, But for now, I think we're going to wrap up. Thank you, Corey, Tom, and David for joining us from Beirut. And join us next time on The ER. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.